Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is with Lucy Billingsley, the partner and co-founder with her husband, Henry, of the Billingsley Company, one of the most active developers and owners in all property types in the Dallas metropolitan area. The co-headline for Lucy is that she's the only daughter, along with five brothers of Trammell Crow. In our conversation, Lucy talks about growing up in the Crow household, but most of the focus is on her true love, which is developing great real estate in North Texas, making a difference in the community through the built environment, and leading a multi-generational family business. Lucy is a delight, and I hope that you'll enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Mid-episode, we'll be joined by Tom Fish from our sponsor, JLL, who will provide some insights into the current marketplace. We thank JLL for its sponsorship of Leading Voices. JLL is a leading global real estate professional services firm that is reimagining the world of real estate by creating rewarding opportunities in amazing spaces around the world so that people can achieve their ambitions. For more information on JLL, visit jll.com voices. I need a favor from you. If you're enjoying Leading Voices, please recommend your favorite episode to a friend in the business and encourage them to subscribe as well. Rate us on the iTunes store. And if you have comments or suggestions for the series, feel free to contact me at my day job at matt at or through our website, leadingvoicespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoy the episode. I'm joined today by Lucy Billingsley, and I am thrilled to be on the phone with you today. Um, as I, Lucy, as I prepare for these, I think of my headlines before the conversation, even though we're going to have it, so you never know what we find. But here's a couple of the headlines that came to my mind as I learned about you over the past couple of weeks. You're innovative. You're a passionate person. You have a passionate family-owned real estate development business with a company with three, four, or five people, including plus animals in your family, from your family. You focus in the Dallas area. Of course, the headline is you're the daughter of Trammell Crow, truly the number one brand name in the real estate business. We'll talk about that. You build for a long-term hold while your dad built his empire largely on merchant build, at least in the apartment business. I'm thinking about community leader and philanthropist, and a last comment is watching one or two of your videos and flipping through your website. You are smiling. You're passionate. You have a sense of fun and a lot of innovation about the business. Am I kind of on target? And is there a headline I'm missing that you're going to want to talk about today? You're much too grandiose. <laughs> I am just a girl hunting for another hit and wanting to get up and get to work every day and do it again. I love it. So a girl hunting for another hip, hit, and we should be talking about the music business, so that sounds more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be a lot of fun, but you can tell by my voice, that's not the business I'm in. We have a lot to talk about, but let, let's start, if you can give us an overview of what your company is, what you have in the portfolio, and what you're developing We'll drill down later, but kind of the elevator speech would be helpful. Sure. Uh, we're a local real estate development company. We do things the old-fashioned way. We buy raw land when it's cheap and far out. Uh, we try to buy big, big tracks. We hold on to it. When we can see that development is coming to the site, we try to figure out what's the smartest and best thing to do, and then we go do it to the best of our ability. With a large tract of land, you end up building office, retail, multifamily, sometimes industrial. Um, we don't do single family. We don't do medical. We don't do um, hospitality. Um, but for all the rest of it, since we're on large tracts of land, each step we take counts a great deal. So the first step and the first thing we build must be pretty damn good because it influences a whole lot more to come. And you also do work in the city center or no? Yes. We've got uh, one building downtown uh, with the capacity to add two more. So it would be a three-building campus in the CBD. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And your current portfolio, the company's 40 years old, give or take? Oh, that sounds outrageous. Let me think about it another way. I've been in business, uh, I'm 65, so I've been in business 45 years. Uh, I inherited assets. To begin with, from my dad, um, my husband and I have been married 40 years, so he's a bit older, so he's been in the business a little longer. Um, 
and I worked for 15 years for a family business, and we've launched our company together, uh, you know, in the 90s. So I don't want to count the years. You do that. <laughs> That's a fair deal. I, and I'm a recruiter, so I'm not allowed to ask those questions anyhow. Good, talk, good, good. Soft limits for us. But talk about your portfolio just to get a sense of size and scale. Um, you know, I don't count these things very well. Um, I've got a sheet in front of me someplace. Somebody told me to pay attention. We've built probably over 8,000 apartments. Um, we've got probably 5,500 right now. And we can add up to, um, on the land we have, uh, let's say another 20,000. So that'll take time. Offices, we've probably got four and a half million square feet mm -hmm. of office buildings today. And on the land we have could uh, build up um, another 10 million, let's say. Industrial, we've probably got about 10 million square feet. And um, retails, we're um, probably 600,000. And, you know, have some more land again for expansion. Then we also have some raw land that's zoned single family that at some point we'd either uh, sell to a developer or change the zoning on if it was appropriate. So big player. It's interesting. Some of the quote unquote big players play in every space and that means they're going to be local and others play in one space and they go regional or national. Everything you do is focused in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Is that yeah, we've got some industrial in Houston and Chicago, but you're right. Our development focus is Dallas. And talk about kind of doing business in Dallas-Fort Worth and where it's going and the growth potential and how that's able to drive the business you have. Well, it's, uh, I tell you that we're the greatest country in the world, and we're in the most dynamic state and the most dynamic city in the world. Um, so the potential here is absolutely unbelievable. It's a thrilling market to be in. And when you're in a good market, you get to go build good new things. You get to raise the bar, enhance the game, be more thoughtful, try to create better communities. Um, so it, it's a great time of innovation. And Dallas is becoming a newer and newer city and metroplex. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about two things there, raising the bar and what that means and how that drives the type of communities and, and properties that you build. And then talk about the feeling or conditions for development in your metropolitan area. In mine in San Francisco, development's usually a dirty word. And maybe in Texas, development's a very good word or at least at least neutral, which is a whole lot better than it might be on the West Coast. Any comments on that? Sure, let me jump with the latter. You know, development is progress. Development is creating tomorrow. It is a great word, and it's a, a thrill to be a part of it. Now we've got to jump back and say, how do we do it? How do we do it in a way that enhances these communities for tomorrow? And so we start out by looking at the public realm. What is the street? What's the sidewalk? What's the relationship of the buildings? To, and where's the landscaping? How do we get this urbanity in every place we build? We now build urbanity in what are historically suburban areas because people want the density. Multifamily is not a dirty word anymore because people are rental living. And we, everyone wants high density now because it's greener and more environmentally sensitive. So how do we come in with the amenities that are going to bring in the dog parks and the splash pads and the retail and the trails and the lakes? How do we bring those things in so these places are quite livable and enhance with time, get better as they age? That's the thrill of it. I totally agree. There's nothing more thrilling than a neighborhood that works. There's maybe nothing less thrilling than a neighborhood that doesn't. And over the years, particularly in kind of suburban sprawl, kind of an adage, but it, our industry is part of the problem in creating that. And maybe you created some of that, I don't know, but when might that have shifted for you to think the way you're thinking about this? Sure. We've built some strip retail centers. Um, they're effective, um, but we have abandoned that model and said if we're going to build 
a row of retail together in the future, it is going to be made out of 100-year-old bricks and metal siding and materials that make it become something. Or we built some retail recently that were little restaurants, 650, 750 square feet. We built them like shacks, and we hung them out over a dog park into a floodplain with huge trees. It's just, that's the place I want to be. I don't want to go to the strip center. That would, uh, I don't know anybody does if they have a choice, right? So that makes all the difference. Yeah, it's, it's efficient. It's not pleasant. And so interesting, your business is built to hold and hold for the long term. How do you achieve that financially? And then that contrasts with merchant build. It may be easier to build to hold with the values that you're bringing to this. But talk about that approach to the business versus merchant build, which, again, thinking of Trammell Crow, the residential part, that that's what they, that company always has been. So... When you build it, to, um, you build it with a certain set of values. Um, obviously, you want the building to be substantial, quality, classical, no leaks. Um, uh, something that if it needed to be uh, converted from one kind of a use to a similar one, it's practical. Um, so the thought process is a bit different. Um, we don't, we build things um, as a family. So we don't have what I call fancy money breathing down our necks. So we don't have partners that need to sell in a five or seven year period. So it, it, we, we try to make the decisions the best we can. We're not forced into making a decision based on a timeline versus the market. Um, we're not forced to lease things up quickly. We want to, we try to, but we don't have to discount it to do so. So our financial dynamics are different, and so the rules by which we play are different, and that permits us to have this long-term attitude. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I, I did work with a Chinese developer, a hotel developer, a couple years ago, and the headline was he builds, he'll spend the extra dollar. Maybe he'll spend the extra thousand dollars, you know, whatever it is, to make it timeless and essential. When you're doing that, how do you bring a, the discipline of return on investment when you're adding that extra little stuff or lots of extra little stuff to make it work over the long term? So I'm just curious. So first off, we have to start with what will people pay? We can't pretend that we're going to come to the market and charge people more than what's appropriate. So Let's get over that immediately. We might sink some money in, we typically do, um, a bit at least, to um, add sculpture or other amenities. And we just don't worry too much about it. It's not a crazy amount, certainly within respect to the percentage of cost of a project. And we just somehow believe that we're going to get it back in speed to lease up or renewal rates. You know, if people feel good about where they are, they like to come, they like, they like to stay. They like to come, they like to stay, and they're going to come back again. It'll be part of their rhythm of life. You know, when we're talking to corporations about taking office space with us now, um, we can tell them, look, we know how to build buildings. Don't worry about space. Let's talk about the environment. Let's talk about, talk about hiring and recruiting your employees. How do you get the best? Let's team with you to accomplish that, and the environment will spin around that. That's what we want to bring to you. So it's mm -hmm. a different thought process than real estate used to be. Absolutely true, especially in the office business because it was a place to house people, and it was pretty cold and antiseptic. And it now— Yeah, it's totally a commodity, a box. Yeah. And now it's a part of your brand. It's a part of your culture. Uh, it's, we're just much luckier to be thinking about it in this kind of a way. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I don't think a sector has changed. The last to change may be office, and it may wind up being the deepest change of all. Yeah, and, but I'll tell you, multifamily, since we started in the business, people used to put a get one building type, stamp it out 15 times on a windy driveway, and we've shattered that mold. Certainly, we've never done that. 
And but we, in our design approach, have helped to shatter it. Um, when we built our first apartments, our tagline was apartments without the complex. Mm. Let's put the buildings on the street, give everybody front doors on the ground, have the inside block be filled with a park or amenities and shatter the parking, have every building be different, create a place. Um, and so multifamilies changed a great deal. Yeah, and just talk about that, and then we'll come back to some of the others. But use an example of that, and use an example of that a while ago, not necessarily today, because you said we never built that. Maybe everybody else was, but you saw early on that there was a difference. Talk about your coming to realize that and caring about that and building that. Well, so in our first uh, apartment development, you know, my husband said, just copy everybody else. They know what they're doing. and um, Lucilo Pena, who runs development here, and I just could not bring ourselves to do it. It was just so obviously a broken model. Um, Lucilo's background is that as an architect, and you know, mine's is just having opinions without knowledge. <laughs> and so, uh, but I think part of it was also just being female and not being trained in multifamily. So. I respect the math again, what people pay for rent. And then we just said, let's do it differently. And um, anyway, it played out beautifully. And um, we've done that at Austin Ranch where now we've built uh, probably over 6,000 apartments, 5,000 apartments there and have a lot more to go. And it's just a wonderfully large community and you don't feel like you're in a complex just Mm -hmm. as we had hoped. Uh-huh. Uh, wonderful. And then talk about that in the office world and maybe one arts plaza and that may be in the in the city, right? Yeah, that's we're downtown. Well, this was the first office building built in the CBD of Dallas after 18 years. So we know in the end of the 80s, early 90s, all the corporations left of the suburbs. We were lucky enough to have 7-Eleven want to come back downtown and we have, fortunately for us, uh, an iconic location where the major two freeways, Central Expressway and Woodall Rogers, meet, and we're at the terminus of the Arts District, which was just then beginning. And 7-Eleven didn't want to pay high rates. We'd never done a downtown office building. So we just kept saying, how do we create something that's classical, beautiful, but they'll afford, and it gets us kicked off. And so we made it bigger. That shared costs out. Then we added condos. That brought a new source of revenue. And then we added retail to service all of the above. And um, it's, it's turned out lovely. Um, thank heaven. Successful. And um, it's the first of a three-building campus. And now the arts district's built up with opera, theater, symphony. Um, it, and, and so we're uh, really lucky to be in the end of two blocks with five Pritzker Prize winning buildings. Wow. And what year did you deliver that? 10 years ago or 11 years ago. That's early in terms of thinking, mixed use, thinking at the edge of the city. We're just trying to make a deal. So we just had to keep being, you know, creativity. Uh-huh. Back to your initial comment, you're just a girl hunting for another hit, but you're hunting for interesting and big hits and creative hits, not just the next hit. Now, happily, I've been doing this for a while. People answer my phone calls. You know, uh, when you're first getting into work, you're trying to establish yourself. And um, But now we've got some big platforms to work with. Cypress Waters, the development we have, is on a 300-acre lake. We're getting a six-mile trail system zipping around the lake. Um, great retail. Uh, we're, you know, we're creating a place that's so attractive and it's the fresh new office area. So we get to do things that developments that are 30 years old can't do. So it's uh, an incredibly exciting time of opportunity for us. Talk about fresh new office area because in the past that meant further out in the suburbs and maybe this is a suburban development, but talk about this as a suburban development and bringing these urban sensibilities and walkability sensibilities to that kind of development. Sure. This is um, near DFW Airport, and when DFW was placed uh, over 35, 40 years ago, Mm -hmm. it was placed 
to service the entire Metroplex, Dallas, Fort Worth, Denton, Arlington, the whole region. And so our location adjacent to that is great to service the entire Metroplex. We, uh, it was a parcel that was a thousand acres that was um, used by a utility until we purchased it. So um, a lot had built up around it. It's suburban. CEOs now live further away to the west, further from Dallas. So um, now we're sort of in the middle of the metroplex. You've got, um, you know, CEOs in all sides of us, the airport next to us. The Dart Line will be the first stop on the Dart Line coming out of DFW. So location, location, location. Lake in Dallas, who else is on a major lake? Trails, parks, um, residential living next to the retail next to the office. So now, how do we create this to look fabulous? Um, how do we create the Texas you wish you were from? And to me, it's bringing in Texas stones, Texas metals, a contemporary sense of Texas architecture, which is actually quite sleek uh, and elegant. And that's in the office area. And in residential, it's really honing back in on the brick sidewalks and the brick buildings and the architecture of industrial romantic kind of architecture. You know, Texas is not known for our architecture, but we are where four different major styles meet. So we bring that variety in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's interesting because if I, again, think of the caricature of Texas, the caricature of suburban development, and I think of the old style of that, I don't want to be there. You have to create a want to be there to these places, which you're describing. Yeah, so, you know, we um, have five-story brick buildings with for residential with beautiful cast stone around the base and this deep blue doors like you'd find in England. So we will jump over to London or to Back Bay, Boston, or to Soho in New York, um, the Portland warehouse area. We'll jump to these areas for inspiration to uh, try to create neighborhoods that are just really comfortable. But if you, if, if you think of some of those cities, you think about Bones, so you have the ability to jam off of an existing building and existing Bones and then play off of that to make it work. If you're doing it in the greenfield, then you, have to, you do have to create all that from scratch. I think we know a whole lot more today than we did 20 years ago about how to do that. And apartments uh, today look really like apartments. They, the high-rise, excuse me, the five-story rat buildings, by and large, they are not beautiful. So we're struggling to say, how do we go look at old prototypes? What do you do in Paris with the windows floor to floor? How do you have a lovely looking building? What do they do in London? So we're trying to harken back to some of the fundamentals in architecture and obviously bring it forward with the balconies and the conveniences we want today. A couple of years ago, I was in Japan and we were in Tokyo and the density in and of itself was enthralling. I, we looked at some of the buildings and they were kind of ugly, but the density, again, in and of itself drove some of the excitement and the mix, the mix and mashup of uses, not just great architecture. And it's different than America where we spread it all out so much that that density excitement never happened in the old days. And, and so with density, um, you have obviously the energy of people. One thing we're doing is we've launched an events company. So now um, we will be creating, we built a soundstage, we'll have programming, we will be having events that invite all of these people together, office, residential, um, right in front of our restaurants. Um, and so for a while, we will be creating the energy. Maybe we'll always be creating it because we hope it's a successful platform in Lausanne. Um, but we also want it to come naturally. Uh, and so we've created places for people to rent where they can go do their own events. Real estate ain't what it used to be. Ain't what it used to be, but it's what it should be as you're describing it. Sounds, sounds great. So let's kind of change the subject a little bit and go backwards. And you come from 
kind of a real estate family, I guess. You grew up in a household with Trammell Crow, who I never had the pleasure of meeting, and you were a young daughter among five brothers. So talk about what it was like growing up there. I don't know what normal is. I don't know how much the real estate stuff and the legend of your father sunk in while you're growing up. Just talk about that. Well, first off, it was great to have five brothers. At Christmas time, it was 50-50, half for the girls, half for the guys. <laughs> and, and since I was number five, you can see they kept trying. Uh, so uh, uh, it was uh, great fun. Also, like many fathers and daughters, uh, we have a very you know, wonderful life together. Um, we were very, very close. Um, my mother's charming, lovely. Uh, I was always a great friend. And when I was a kid, I knew I did not want to leave my mom's life. And I have no criticism of it. I admire it in so many ways. It just wasn't me. So I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was raised uh, very Southern belt. That, you know, I'd go to the university, find a husband, get married and have kids. And um, that didn't and I liked all of it except for uh, it didn't say and go to work. So I did all those things, um, but also went to work. So a good time to me was a time when uh, I could have it all. I wanted to um, work, civic, family, kids. Really, I've been so, so lucky to go lead that life. So dad didn't expect me to go into business. Um, my first semester at the University of Texas, I took a course in economics. And I thought, finally, there's something worth knowing. I mean, writing an essay in high school about a topic I didn't care about was not my cup of tea. So I now really love liberal arts, but it took me about, you know, 50 years to get there. So I admired my dad a ton, loved to get to see what he did. And then, you know, the first chance I had out of college to uh, go to work in the family business, I jumped at it. So what was the family business part, or what did you focus on when you got into it? Um, what I first did was, first off, I worked for another real estate company while I was in college. But for the family, I uh, did retail leasing in Houston, Texas, and I'd go up and down and knock on retailers' doors and find out if they had any interest to expand, and we were building some properties, and if they did try to grab them. I remember doing that at eight and nine months pregnant, and um, it made everybody else nervous, but it kept me happy all the way through. I, I have to say something funny. So I've interviewed, not on the podcast, a couple on the podcast, but dozens and dozens of people who grew up in one of the Trammell Crow organizations, particularly not people in multifamily because that wouldn't have worked this way, but people on any side of the commercial business, their first job was always leasing. This was the motto of, of that company. So your dad sent you in the same direction he sent everybody else. Yeah, and the base salary was very low, and um, you obviously made it on commission, and then people got to become partners. The way my husband landed in Dallas was one of his uh, business school friends was working for Trammell Crow Company, and at a reunion, he learned that the guy was already a partner and had equity, and he came down to Dallas and interviewed with dad uh, a couple of weeks later and about, you know, three to four weeks after that, he moved in and, you know, dropped his salary and started leasing. Wait, say that again. He moved in, dropped his salary and started leasing. Yeah, because he'd been up on Wall Street and, had, you know, been compensated much more heavily, but, you know, didn't have the opportunity for equity. Our, our listeners just have to hear that story again and again because it's a fascinating part of the real estate business. Probably a little different today than it was 30, 40 years ago, but still a truism. Well, one of the great gifts that Dad gave to the real estate community was his model of partnership. And he let young men go start new cities and become the partners. And in that, um, they obviously did great jobs, they grew wealthy, and he along with them. So it was a model of trust, of generosity, of uh, hard work, of high expectations, 
and you made it all on the come. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. We, one of the podcasts uh, a couple of months ago was with Ron Terwilliger, who may have used the same words that you did about him bringing that same exact motto, him being under that rule, and then bringing it to his partners and on and on and on like that. It's uh, a great community of people. It's like a fraternity. This is a close group. No doubt. But you also said your father would bring in a young man and groom him to be partner. And obviously you might get a family exception on this, but you said it early and it's obvious it's true. So you're a woman going into this business. Talk about that early on and then talk about that through the course of your career. Well, um, I'm also fairly short. So I just decided neither of these things are important. The fact that I'm female is irrelevant, and, um, and you know, so are many other things. Now, all I want to go do is succeed. So that's sort of my MO. I think we're all our own billboard. So if I, you know, come in and demonstrate that I'm confident and confident and ready to do it, um, you might believe me. And we all move forward together. Um, in Dad's world, he always was supportive of the advancement of women. He um, did not have, I don't think, any women partners early on for sure. And um, maybe like a lot of people, became um, more aware when his own daughter grew up and went to work. And so I think that his advancement and growth of women was much more like the time he lived in Mm -hmm. um, rather than today's world. And for that moment in time, he was in the forefront. Mm -hmm. Fair deal. It, it's interesting that we had the conversa- same conversation on the discussion with Ron Twilliger, and he talked about women, and but all of the leaders were in property management. <laughs> so it was, you know, always in the stereotypical roles where it was easier for women then to enter into the business. It, I believe it's changed in a not as meaningful way as we want, but it has changed gradually and still meaningfully. Yeah, there... Um probably, I don't know, a dozen or 20 women developers of some scale in the United States. There are a lot of great women brokers. I think there are many more there. There are many more brokers than there are developers. At least, maybe I'm not aggressive enough, but part of my attitude was give us time. Let us become successful and grow into the jobs. And I think the percentages will continue, certainly in the brokerage world, to change pretty rapidly. I hope that you're enjoying the conversation with Lucy Billingsley. We're joined by JLL Executive Managing Director Tom Fish with some comments about the market. Tom is based in JLL's Houston office and is a national leader in their investment banking business, helping clients raise debt and equity capital. Tom, Lucy talks about her passion for Texas real estate and the strength of Texas as a place to do business as a developer and for business in general. Comments on that? Yeah, I've been in this market for 32 years. My personal favorite is the demographics of our state and how that bears out in the commercial real estate industry. Being a multicultural state and a multicultural city, it's fascinating for us to see how that bears out with respect to demand, demand for workforce housing, demand for high-tech space, demand for medical-oriented office buildings. And so it just is a uh, great driver for a lot of different forms of commercial real estate. So let's just go back for a moment, because I am curious, if you about family, and then let's talk about the creation of your business. But I'm um, thinking about the five brothers. I, I talked to one person out in the world, and I said, hey, I'm going to talk to Lucy Billingsley, and, and he headlines. And this person said, five brothers, she was one of the youngest. But then he said, but the toughest. No kidding. And any comments or thoughts of how you develop that toughness coming, maybe it's being one of the youngest kids, I don't know. You know, I used to think I had a disadvantage of being the female, Uh certainly early on in my business career. And when I was about 40, I realized it had been a huge advantage. My brothers had grown up under a successful father, and who's not competitive with their parents, right? Right, yeah. And it's a benchmark against which you prove yourself. And no one had expected anything of me. 
And all I did want was want to prove myself. So I think I was really lucky to have uh, to be a female and to have had that perspective in my youth to create ambition. I think that's a wonderful way to look at it, and, and I want to think of the Pritzker family and others, but it sounds like that's what you did, and, and it's a clear path. Yeah, and then I'm, you know, my husband's a brilliant guy, and um, his attitude is that I can go anything, do anything I want to do just so long as he doesn't have to do anything he doesn't want to do. <laughs> <That's> a... <laughs> so we get along great. That's the way. Okay, so your husband, you meet him at the Trammell Crow Company, and then you start your own business. Talk about jumping out, starting the business, and starting the business intentionally with your partner spouse. Well, first off, I was at the Dallas Market Center for 15 years. <laughs> and so, I don't know, Henry and I probably got married after I'd been at the Market Center a couple of years. So, we were in two different businesses for some time. When I left the Market Center, I launched a travel agency, which I'd started at the Market Center, and I wanted to grow that business because I wanted to see if I could do this business thing myself or if it was just because I was given such an unbelievable platform to function and grow and learn with. And so fortunately, the travel agency worked and grew a lot. And um, at the end of the late 90s, um, the real estate drought was just about to end. And that's when uh, Henry and I were then officing together. I'd left the market center. And it, it looked like he was about to sell some land that looked like really good land. And so then I just raised my hand and said, well, why don't, why don't I develop on that? Um, that's when we started uh, some suburban office and then the multifamily project we dis- discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the first opportunity was with land Henry was selling. You're, but had he already left Trammell Crow? Yes, he left Trammell Crow when we got married. Okay. When they put in a nepotism rule, I think sort of conveniently um, at that time. Uh, but in any instance, as a result of that, he left the company and launched his own uh, business in buying raw land. Okay, got it. So then you have raw land, you start the company, the Billingsley Company. And you're off to the races. You have your first big project. So talk about kind of the, the evolution of your business. So, uh, again, we're conservative. We're doing these with our own funds. And we need to make sure each thing we do succeeds um, so we can obviously have the opportunity to do again. So we have some beautifully located land. Like Henry said, this, this tapestry is so good that anybody, any fool can make money on this land. So I just want to be that fool. Uh-huh. And, uh, and we run in and do them the one at a time to make sure that we're succeeding. We never want to get over our skis. And so our first buildings, I think, were very cautious, not as appealing or as attractive as what we have today, but very, very uh, conveniently located and with tons of trees and windows. And then our first apartments. Uh, broke the mold, and they were, you know, much more out of the box and and established a template that we've continued to work on. Um, and with all of it, though, um, since we own large parcels, each step we make uh, not only is important for the sake of that project, but it influences 800 more acres. Mm-hmm. So we better do each one right, which I think gives us a caution and an attention to detail that. Um, others who step in and buy one or two blocks at a time have no ability to influence or regard for. Mm-hmm. We talked about this before, but let's revisit it. When you built those first apartments, there was a conscious decision that it was okay or desirable to break the mold. Yeah. What I wanted to do was meet the unrecognized need. I wanted to have somebody drive by and see the place and think, that's what I've been looking for. And they didn't know what it was about it, but it got them. And so our exteriors, we put tons of focus into, so they create the place. And if you have a whole ton of adjacent acres, you got to create the place so you can invest in those first buildings bigger or more innovatively, or else the rest of those acres aren't going to get the value creation that you're looking to create there. That's right. And now... Um, we're able to continue to enhance on what we did. 
And so uh, each phase is uh, more interesting than the one before. So change subject again. Talk about being in your family business and talk about being business partners with your husband. It's, I'm sure it's all smooth. So talk about that. I think business relationships are based on respect. And um, I have huge respect for my husband. He's uh, brilliant in so many ways that I'm not. And um, I like every, I like, I get excited about almost every deal. He is very cautious. That's dull and boring, but it has kept us in good stead. Um, so we might have missed some deals that were good. Surely we have, but we haven't made bad deals. And that's due to uh, his approach. He's also the one that's bought all of this land and done so in such a way that there's no debt on it and uh, that we're in, in safe financial stead. So we're very different. I know I love the building, the creating, um, the design. Um, I think we have the same attitudes about finance and about risk and, and debt and caution. So, um, and he, he used to do the industrial, any investments we'd make, and I'd do the office multifamily and retail on the development side. Now our kids have jumped in. Our son George runs industrial. Our daughter Lucy's jumped into running office. Our daughter Sumner is in the multifamily business. And our son Trammell's independent and has a retail business on his own. And so those are all new relationships. And those are changing and changing and changing as people grow and morph more into who they want to become and what skill sets they know and their appetite and for new growth and risk. Mm -hmm. And with so many family members in the business, I I don't know how to ask the question. You have the dynamic with your husband, and it sounds like your complementary perspectives are wonderfully complementary. And then your kids come in, and then you're navigating every day being around them. A, let's talk about that a little bit, talk about their growth, and then talk about for those who aren't a family member being in the business, how do they pierce the bubble to get into the inside of conversations? Well, first off, it's most important to me that we deal with these are our lives and our respect for each other and what growth do they want to achieve. Um, I have, and Henry and I have set this up so that our kids do not own assets together. I don't want them to have financial tension ever become between each other. Happily, they're in product types that complement their personalities a great deal. Um, George loves industrial uh, and his, the risk factor of it, the, the, the momentum of it, uh, the interest of it. Um, Lucy is much more financial deal maker property, you know, seeing these property management, doing the new office deals. She doesn't want to have a portfolio just of that, but that's where her expertise in running that portion of our business is. And then Sumner's jumped into the multifamily world, really with the development side of the business, uh, and then now growing more into operations. Again, their portfolios go across different categories, but their leadership and their decision-making is independent. Mm-hmm. I, I welcome our listeners to go to your company website and look at the pictures of your family and colleagues. And somehow the way you've done your website is the personality of each person actually comes out and looks like what you just described. Well, good, good. And we've got our two dogs on there. I was going to say. So, and, and what's their, and they have titles, I think. Oh, they do. My daughter bought a, a Sumner, bought a French bulldog, named him Bacon, and started bringing him to work. I was outraged. I just thought, no one does this. This is so inappropriate. And Bacon took over the office. Everybody loved him. And a year later, I got another French bulldog and named her Shadow. And so they both come to work every day. Oh, wonderful. So, and Lucy, are, are you involved with uh, the Crow family business as well or no? I am not. When I uh, 
left the family business. I stepped away from all shared assets, with the exception of one classic property we have, the Anatole Hotel. Um, but all the rest is Harlan and uh, my brothers, uh, Stuart and Trammell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it's interesting to think about this because the success of now a multi-generational family business and separate family businesses. And I have done a lot of work with different companies, some of which are very successful with family relationships and some of which are unsuccessful. In fact, massively unsuccessful, dysfunctional with how it works, particularly when you get to G234. Um, I don't know if you have an answer to this. Maybe you do. Do you have like a corporate shrink or a family office mediator who understands these things and helps you structure these for long-term success? No, no, no. We haven't done any of that kind of thing. And, you know, partly our attitude and certainly mine, it's pretty female attitude. This is about their lives and their growth. And, you know, our relationships are more important than the deal. So um, I want to establish a platform for my kids to be able to become whomever they can be, whoever they desire. And I want to do the same for the grandkids. And if it exists in this company and this company grows in a way and we contribute to the Metroplex with great development, fabulous. If they do it another way, high five. Just don't push me out. Absolutely. And and so think about that. A couple of follow-on questions that so you have a lot of passion, a lot of energy in the business. You said earlier, so I could quote, you're 65 years old. Do you ever retire? Does this ever become not a part of your life? Or particularly with your young family members, does this become a forever thing? And what does that mean? Um, no, I don't ever retire. And yes, I do reinvent myself. And um, I like it when my kids are growing in the same way I did. And I like the, the imposed pressure I put on myself. I need to get out of their way. And I've got to create more for myself for tomorrow. My kids are very respectful and kind and busy. So they're, they're not pushing on me. Um, but I know they'll be there. So I just have to reinvent myself. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. The old model was you don't reinvent yourself. You just stop. And the new model among the lucky few is that they reinvent themselves forever. I was on the phone yesterday with my aunt who lives in Houston, actually, mid-80s. Her husband is a world-class triathlete at like 81 or something. And, but she's talking about every day pushing hard to keep growing, not treading water or going underwater. But it's every day. So we've got one life to live. Let's live it. You got it. So a couple of other loose ends, and then we're, we're going to wrap up. You said the female perspective just a minute ago. So you quoted you know, your company, and maybe your company brings the female attitude. And I, I keep pushing a little bit on what it means to be a woman in this business, but what do you mean by the female attitude? What can we use more of? But what, what does that female attitude mean? Maybe it drives down to your values. Um, in the family sense, it obviously, um, I go right to always having focused on creating this platform for us, for my own growth, um, my husband's and our kids. So it's very human and very, um, then people in relationship driven. In, in buildings and design, it's um, jumping right to what's the experience for the person who's going to live here? How good are they going to feel when they walk in the front door? Are they going to be complimented when they come through the office lobby and go to work each day? How do I care and enhance these lives? And I love design. I love finance. And so how do we um, think about these details? How do we create the Texas that you wish you were from? I feel like these are maybe questions that guys are asking too, um, but they are at least new new questions. My sense is that's part of the female perspective. So back to another question I asked before, and then we're going to wrap up. The question I asked before, and this may be to push this outside of your environment in Texas, is how do we raise 
change the consciousness of the public about the opportunities inherent in the development that our industry does. And some places are more open to that attitude than others. Some people get away with it more because they may be seen as a community leader. But in other communities, they're fighting everything that happens, you know, step by step by step. How do we as an industry change that attitude? I think it's largely driven by the culture of the place. When the city of Dallas has gone out and asked for citizen input about development guidelines and standards, the citizenry of Dallas said, give us high-density multifamily. Now, that used to be not in my backyard. Right. But it's because of the things we discussed, the greenery, the, um, you know, the environment. Texas has an attitude of can-do, rugged individualism, be about tomorrow, um, kick ass, take names. Um, we aren't going downhill in a snowplow being defensive about everything. We're not scared of success. And, you know, we're the things we should do better. But this is a culture that, by its very nature, lifts all boats. People should just be more like Texas. <laughs> okay. But every word you're saying, I totally agree with and makes sense, particularly for what the development community and the development world's about. So my last question on every podcast is the same. If you were giving advice to a young person embarking a career in the real estate business, what advice would you give them? Take the risk. Believe in yourself. Be bold. Work as hard as you possibly can. Be totally connected and know the people in the business and then seize every opportunity. All wise thoughts. Lucy, thank you so much for the wonderful conversation. Thank you, Matt. This episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate has been brought to you by JLL. The firm's in-depth local market and global investor knowledge delivers the best-in-class solutions for clients. Whether a sale, financing, repositioning, advisory, or recapitalization execution. Are you interested in how to make your ambition a reality? Learn more at jll.com voices. That's jll.com voices. 